I want to take as my text this morning that reading from Paul's first letter to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. If you're making use of the Pew Bible, you can find that text on page 1132. 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and beginning at verse 1, which I'd like us to look at uh, again quickly. 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and beginning at verse 1. The Apostle Paul writing this letter, and he's not in prison. <laughs> but he says, beginning at verse 1, And I, when I came to you, brothers, sisters in Corinth, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God or the message of God with lofty speech or wisdom, philosophy. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ, and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible or persuasive words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the power of the Spirit, that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. And yet among the mature we do impart wisdom, Although it's not the wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to, to pass away, but we impart secret and hidden wisdom which God decreed before the ages for our glory. And none of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thought except the Spirit of that person, which is in him? And so also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. And now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who's from God, that we might come to understand the things freely given to us by grace, by God. This morning I want to talk about Christ crucified and the wisdom of God. Christ crucified in the wisdom of God, which might seem a rather strange combination of ideas, the crucifixion of Christ, or Christ crucified in the wisdom of God, and indeed that was a certainly a strange combination of ideas in the minds of the Jews and Greeks in Paul's day, and perhaps it seems strange to you too. In fact, earlier in this same letter to the Corinthians in chapter 1, Paul wrote, for the cross of Christ, or Christ crucified, is foolishness to those who are spiritually perishing. For the Jews demand a sign that is miracles. Show me a miracle. And Greeks seek wisdom that is eloquence, eloquent speech and philosophy. But we, the apostles, we preach Christ crucified, which is a stumbling block or an offense to the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles. And then Paul continues in verse 24, chapter 1, but, those, but to those who are, being, who, who are called 
by God. Both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. In fact, according to Christ and his apostles, there is no gospel without the message of Christ crucified. It's central. It's sine qua non, without which nothing. If you don't have it, you don't have a gospel. In fact, later on in this same letter of Paul to the Corinthians in chapter 15, he he says as much. In chapter 15 and beginning at verse 1, he says, And now I remind you, brothers and sisters at Corinth, of the gospel that I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, you're living in it, and by which you are now being saved or delivered by God. If you hold fast to the word that I preached to you, unless you believed or gave assent to it in vain. For I delivered to you of first importance in this gospel. It's first and most important, perhaps, component. What I also received, and that is that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. And then notice again our text, beginning at verse 1. And when I came to you, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony or the gospel of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you, even when we first met, except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And so Paul says that the message of Christ crucified requires no embellishment. It is what it is. In fact, the Greeks, we should mention in Paul's day, they they expected teachers like Paul. And they probably thought he was just going to blow in and blow out, collect a little money and go on to his next audience. But they expected teachers to be skilled orators in the Greek tradition, to say things that were both entertaining and compelling, maybe for them to do something that they hadn't done before. But Paul didn't do that. In fact, uh, even some in the church at Corinth criticized him for not doing it. In fact, when you come to the second letter of, of, uh, of Corinthians, uh, he talks about that. He bears record of what some people at the church at Corinth were saying about him. Can you imagine that? People talking about their preachers. But in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, Uh, 10 and verse 10, he says, um, and for some say of me, his letters are weighty and strong, but his bodily presence is weak, and his speech is of no account. (laughs) So they didn't like looking at him, (laughs) and they didn't like listening to him. And still for Paul, the message of Christ crucified is enough in and of itself And that's because if the point is the salvation of souls, the message of Christ crucified, which is at the heart of the gospel, the message of Christ crucified is enough. Indeed, when he wrote to the Romans, he talked about that, its sufficiency, and and he said that he wasn't ashamed of it because of what it was. But first, uh, Romans in uh, chapter 1 and verse 16, he said, For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, even though the Greeks think it's stupid, and my fellow Jews are offended by it, I'm not ashamed. For the gospel is the power of God for salvation. 
It transforms people's lives. It's the thing that God uses to change them from being in the dark and transforming them and transferring them into the light. They were blind, but he makes them see. They were without purpose or, or, or vision, and this made all the difference in the world, connecting them with their creator God through redemption. And so I'm not ashamed, Paul says, of the gospel, for it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And then so look again in verse 1 and 2 of our text. And when I came to you, brothers, I didn't proclaim to you the testimony or the gospel of God, we might say, with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And notice that the message is twofold, Christ and Christ crucified. That it's, it's, it, the message is Christ. You don't have the message without Him. It's all about Him and all about what He did and all about who He is and all about what He says. And so the message is Christ and Him crucified. That is, him crucified for you, him crucified for me. In the Gospel of John, we have his words recorded. He said, he did always those things that please the Father. At his baptism, you remember that the, that the, that, that the, the sky opened and the Spirit of God descended like a dove and rested upon him. And then a voice came and said, the voice of the Father, this is my beloved Son with whom I'm well pleased. When he died, he didn't die for, for his crimes or his sins. He's the spotless Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He died for my sins. In fact, in Romans chapter 5, Paul said, and in this is God's love demonstrated toward us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That's substitution, and that's foreseen in the sacrificial system of the Old Testament. In fact, that's what, that's what John the Baptist was talking about when he pointed out to his disciples, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. They understood the idea that the, the lamb was given to God as, a, as, a, as an offering and God forgave on the basis of it. But it was one sacrifice for one sin. The idea of one lamb dying for everyone's sin was a completely new idea. But that's who Christ is. And so Peter, one of Jesus' closest associates and apostles, wrote in his first letter, for he himself, Christ, bore our sins in his own body upon the tree. Then notice that Paul says, and the message of Christ crucified is not dependent upon the power of those who proclaim it. <laughs> but rather that it is a manifestation of the power of God in the lives of those who believe it. When I read that, I was, I was thinking about my own conversion experience. It wasn't anything particularly eloquent about the speaker. But the message that I had heard for many years, which I really had no interest in, all of a sudden the penny dropped and it seemed like the most important thing that was happening in the universe and it was happening to me right there. And I did something I had never done before. I said, yes, 
In fact, in particular, the point to me in my thinking was, Lord Jesus, you are Lord, and you deserve my faithfulness. And that was the beginning of a transformation that not only was a wonderment to me, but a wonderment to others as well. Is that the same Scott Thompson? And that had nothing to do with the eloquence of the one who gave the challenge that evening, but the power of God on display in my life. And perhaps you have a similar story. But notice again verses 3 and 5, 3 through 5. He said, and, and when I was with you, <laughs> I was with you in weakness. And I was with you in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not with plausible or persuasive words of wisdom. No one would have said, you know what? I couldn't help myself. <laughs> he was so persuasive and he was so compelling that I, I mean, by the way, have you ever heard Paul preach? Whew, man, I've never heard anything. There was none of that. Again, back in Corinth, they're saying his presence is weak and his speech is worse. But people in Corinth were converted. And I was with you in weakness and fear and much trembling, and my speech and my message were not with plausible or persuasive words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, that your faith may not rest in the wisdom of men, that your faith won't be based on me. but on the power of God. And so Paul says that uh, when he first uh, came to Corinth, he, he was uh, self-describing here as weak. Isn't this an extraordinary thing? This is not how. Do you know a lot of leaders who talk like this? And they go, oh, well, I'm weak, and I was afraid. In fact, I was so afraid, I trembled uncontrollably. And perhaps in addition to his concern for his physical well-being, in fact, if you've ever read the book of Acts, he went from one place to the next, and in most instances, he's, he, or in many instances, he suffered some sort of physical affliction because people attacked him and his entourage, those who were serving with him. But perhaps in addition to concerns for his physical well-being, perhaps this also had something to do with what Paul knew relative to the Corinthians' expectations of what a speaker like him should be, and that they were very likely to consider his message to just be a bunch of nonsense. Interestingly enough, we have a reference to Paul's fear described in the book of Acts. In fact, if you want to know about his first visit and his ministry in Corinth initially, you can read about it in the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 18. I think verses 1 through 17. And there you have a description of it. But within that, within that account, the Luke who wrote the Acts of the Apostles, he wrote this in chapter 18 and beginning at verse 9. And he said that the, that, that the Lord said to Paul in a night vision. Why? Because he's, he's weak and he's fearful and he's trembling. The Lord said to Paul in a night vision, don't be afraid, Paul. But go on speaking and don't be silent, though you might be tempted to be quiet. For I'm with you, Paul, 
And I have many in this city who are my people, my chosen. And then Luke says in verse 11, and Paul stayed in Corinth a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. But he was afraid and God said, don't be afraid. I'm here and I'm blessing this. I'm doing something and I'm doing it through you. <laughs> and so success, the success of the gospel in Corinth had little or nothing to do with Paul. Rather, as Paul says in our text, the success of the gospel in Corinth was a demonstration of the power of God. Notice that again. Verses 3 through 5. And I was with you in weakness and fear and much trembling, and my speech and my message were not with plausible or persuasive words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power that your faith might not rest in the wisdom or the gifts or the talents of men, but rest in the power of God. And so that's the message of Christ crucified. And what about God's wisdom? Notice, beginning at verse 6. And yet, while this is not according to the wisdom of the world, he says, yet among the mature, that is, people who are growing and maturing in their faith in Jesus Christ, we do impart wisdom. They recognize it as wisdom. Although it's not the wisdom of this age, or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away. In fact, Jesus was always talking about the age to come, the age to come. And we're all living in the present age, which he referred to as the present evil age. But talked about the age that is to come, that this age is going to end, and then when he returns, the new age will begin, and it will be everlasting. The kingdom of God. Verse 7, but we impart secret hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of the age understood it. For if they had understood the wisdom that we're talking about, they wouldn't have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, no eye has seen, no ear, human ear heard, no human heart imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. If you make it to the kingdom, I guarantee you will not be disappointed. <laughs> and your goodness and your faithfulness to him will be richly rewarded, graciously even, Verse 10, and these things God revealed to us through the Spirit, for the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except the Spirit of that person? Nobody knows what you're thinking. But you know, because you and the immaterial part of you know all about what's happening on the inside of you. And the Spirit of God knows what's happening with the Father and all about His plans. And he can describe it and explain it to whoever he wishes. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except the Spirit of that person which is in him. And so also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. Verse 12, now we have received not the Spirit of the world, the zeitgeist 
We have not received the spirit of the world or the age, but the spirit who's from God, that we might understand the things freely given to us by God. And so Paul says that the wisdom of God is not the same as the wisdom of the world. In fact, if you're familiar with the wisdom of God, you might have noticed that. Why is the, why is this, why the, why the conflict? Because God is heading in this direction and the world is heading in that. Based upon things valued and not valued. And sometimes you'll have relationships with other people if you're a, a believer and you're, you're, you want to be good and you, want, and you will come into conflict both in the church and out of it. Because the driving force and the spirit behind that are different. But the apostles teach us God's wisdom. Paul says that this wisdom is not the same as the wisdom of the age, or even the same as the wisdom of the rulers of the present age. And I think he probably was thinking about rulers in his own age, of which age we still are members in part. Which he describes as one people who are passing away, or in the, literally in the Greek, who are being brought to nothing. It's an ext- extraordinary thing. The things that we think that make them powerful and maybe popular are all things that ultimately will be stripped away. You bring nothing in, you take nothing out but your character. And then God either says to you, well done, thou good and faithful servant, or he says, depart from me, for I never knew you. Paul says the wisdom that drives their life is is different than the wisdom that's been given to us by the Holy Spirit. That God's wisdom on display in Christ crucified is a wisdom, he says, that was hidden previously. But then Christ came and new things were revealed. Indeed, notice verse 7 again. For we impart secret hidden wisdom which God decreed before the ages or before the the creation of the time-space continuum. And all of that that leads ultimately to our glory. And as noted, Paul says that God's Wisdom on display in Christ wasn't understood by the rulers of this age in verse 8. In fact, it's interesting, if you stop and think about it, Pilate knew Jesus was innocent, but he didn't know all of it. In fact, you remember he kept trying to get him off. Do you remember what he said? He said, I find no, I find no fault in this man. But when he said to ask Jesus if you were a king, and Jesus said, I am a king, but my kingdom's not of this world, that was a little confusing. And then, and then Jesus said to Pilate, and all those who listen to the truth, hear my voice and follow me. And Pilate said, what is truth? So he knew he was innocent, but he, did, he, couldn't, he couldn't comprehend who Christ really was. And those who set him up, the religious, the 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 leaders of the religious establishment, they knew he was innocent. And they went to such trouble to come up with what? False testimony. So that based upon falsehoods, 
They could condemn him, but they too didn't recognize who he was. This all comes to a climax when Jesus is hanging on the cross and Jesus says, forgive them, Father, for they don't know what they're doing. But in contrast to this, Paul says that God's wisdom is understood by us. If the Spirit of God is living within us, then we understand it. And the things that we're talking about make a, a great deal of sense. You know, it's, a, it's sort of an interesting thing. I think I may have told you this. Before, my grandmother was always looking after me. I must have been about 12 years old, and uh, she said, well, why don't you go, I'm going to take you to the Halloween party at the church, the, the kids, and so on, Halloween with Bob for apples and red war costumes and whatever, whatever we did. I went as a gangster, uh, <clears throat> which to some of you wouldn't be a great huge surprise, certainly at least of which my wife. <clears throat> So I was 12 years old, and I got a silk suit and a fedora hat, and I, my, my mother helped me draw in a mustache because I didn't have any facial hair when I was 12. And that might be hard for you to believe as well. But I didn't. And I won. I won the, I won the contest. And that meant that I, I won this Bible. And, um, and so I was into winning things. I wasn't necessarily into the Bible, but I was into, okay, I'll have it, you know. And I was happy to have won. And then the guy, the, the youth leader said, well, you, you can't take it now. I'm going to take it back and have your name put on it because we didn't know who was going to win it. And I, that kept me coming back. I think I had to come back to church like four, I was going to put in another word in there, four times to get my Bible. And I was, this guy was starting to get on my nerves, you know. Where's my Bible? And finally, finally I got it and said Scott Thompson. So anyway, I got it home. And I tried to read it. I couldn't make heads or tails. So I went to my grandmother, because my grandmother's Bible was all rags and tatters. And I thought to myself, what are you getting out of that book that you have, you have uh, you're wearing, you have worn it out. So she tried to show me this and that, and I could not make heads or tails of it. One of the things that was so distinct in my mind as I think back, that on, after, on, when I was converted, well, a couple of three, three and a half years later, not quite 16, between 15 and 16. The, this book came alive. <laughs> All of a sudden, it, it just came alive. I, I understood exactly what the writer was saying. I knew exactly what Jesus meant when he said what he said. I hadn't been to seminary. I hadn't even, I hadn't even come back to the youth group for a second lesson. And this book came alive. And one of the features of our youth group was that the, the, the kids would be... Um, uh, invited to give a testimony or, or say something. And what's God doing in your life? I stood up every week. And I would say, I've been reading in the Psalms and I came to the 40th Psalm and my story is there. It says, the Lord heard my cry and he delivered me out of the mire and clay and he put my feet upon a rock and he, and he put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to the Lord. And half of the kids are staring at me like I'm completely mad. But that's the difference 
when your parents drag you to the church and when the Spirit is leading you to the church and the Spirit is alive in you and when the Spirit speaks, you hear and you act accordingly. I suppose the only question as we draw this to a conclusion is, does any of this seem like wisdom to you? And if it does, that's because the Spirit of God is in you and, and, and directing and teaching you. In fact, that was one of the things that Jesus said to his apostles. I will go away and I will send the Spirit and the Spirit will lead you into all truth. But if it doesn't seem like wisdom and it doesn't seem to make sense, perhaps that's because there's another spirit in work, at work in your heart and your mind. And if that's the case, perhaps that's something you'd like to take care of this morning. I remember, that, I remember Steve Fernandez. That he was the associate pastor at the Valley Bible Church in Pano, California on the North Bay. My grandmother still lives in that town. You walk out her front door and you look all the way across to Napa County, across that bay. And, and he said, Jesus is Lord. And he deserves to be believed in and served. Will you do it? And all the way back, I, I had literally had my chair and my head against the back wall. There was no, there was no behind me. And I said, yes, Lord. And maybe you'd like to do that this morning. You've been to church, you know some of the things that we've talked about. But it's never become yours. And you've never said yes to him who wants to lead you in a way that leads to everlasting life. And if you sense him pulling on your heart, speaking to your mind this morning, I want, you to, I want to encourage you just to respond to that this morning. And say, yes, Lord, I'm yours. Amen? Amen. Christ crucified and the wisdom of God. Lord, help us do it. We have everything to gain and nothing to lose. Life is short, as Lakato said, whether we live to be nine or ninety, life is short and the kingdom of God lasts forever. One might even say if we had any sense, we'd respond to the gospel because... It's a winning proposition. And so, Lord, I pray that we would be completely yours and find in that all the freedom we have ever wished for. Even as Jesus said, if you abide in my words, you are truly my disciples and you shall know the truth and the truth shall make you free. Make that a true experience for each one of us. I pray this morning in Jesus' name. Amen.